0: To Read as Well, a podcast for people who love to read and talk about books. I'm Meredith Byrd, and thank you for joining me for episode 5 of our analysis of the Handmaid's Tale. Today we'll be looking at chapters 13 and 14. But before I get started, I'd like to apologize for my long absence. As you probably know, this podcast is something I do in my spare time, and unfortunately there hasn't been much of it lately. I hope that will be changing soon, but I can't make any promises. So I'll be recording episodes when I can, and we will be trying to get on to a regular schedule at some point. As part of making that a reality, I'm launching a Patreon page. Patreon, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, is a place for creators and artists to make a living making their art. Subscribers can give a small monthly donation to help keep the project or art going, and with it they get special perks or rewards. I'd like to continue this podcast after we finish this book and Patreon is one way that I can keep doing what I'm doing as it would allow me to focus my time and energy on the books I'd like to discuss and would also help me make more podcasts in a timely manner. I'd also be able to upgrade my equipment and maybe even pay for someone to edit the podcast so that you get the best sound quality. I'll be launching my Patreon support page on August 1st, but I need some help coming up with rewards and perks for subscribers. So if you'd like to help me decide what kind of reward to give, there will be a poll on my Twitter page. You can find me by my handle at read underscore swell. You can also email me about what we're discussing in this episode or previous episodes. My email address is readwriteswell at gmail.com. And to check out my Patreon page, you can go to patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com dot com forward slash readswell, after August 1st. Speaking of contacting me, I have some great listener mail about episode 4 from Kelly G. Kelly writes, I was thinking about the econo-wives and their hatred of the handmaids. I think it is such a graphic representation of how the insidious nature of patriarchal structure and in institutions turns women against each other. We, who should be natural allies, are instead fighting each other. In the story, we can see that, on every level, women are often the most cruel to other women. The ants are one of our early examples. They are brainwashing and beating other women for the sake of avoiding a worse fate. The wives hate the handmaids and reserve their worst venom for these helpless women instead of turning it against the men who put them in that situation. And it's because the patriarchal system makes it impossible for them to stand up to the men, so the women turn on each other. You can see this play out in our society today. Women are separated by their attractiveness, profession, class, race, etc. And instead of realizing that we are put into these classes by men and we should not accept them, instead we often turn on those less privileged than ourselves. It's a sad fact of patriarchy and oppression. It was also a strategy employed by colonial ruling powers. For example, England would go into a place like India, and find someone willing to accept power and money in exchange for keeping English rule of law. This would mean that the Indian governor or ruler would subjugate their own people in order to accept the perks that the English would give. Thus, the English would divide and conquer. The ruling class aligned with England would have all the power and wealth, but the price was often to kill their own people and destroy their own culture. The aunts remind me of these ruling colonial classes, those who betray their own kind for a sliver of power and privilege. I am also reminded of how white women have often been these betrayers, aligning themselves with white men in order to reap a little bit more protection from the patriarchy, sacrificing their sisters. As a white woman, I know I am always having to think about how my privilege operates in some instances, while at the same time knowing that sexism is also at play. I completely agree, Kelly, and one of the reasons why I bring this letter to everyone's attention is because we're actually going to be discussing a lot of those ideas in today's episode, and so I think it ties in continuously with what we see going on in Gilead, but I think that's also a great point that you make about the dividing and conquering aspect of colonialism and how white women in particular have been part of that, but how women in general do this to each other. So we're going to see that in this episode happening as well. Now let's get into chapters 13 and 14. I want to point out at the beginning that because this is Ofred's memory and her thoughts, we get a very fluid way of looking at time. She jumps back in time to days before Gilead, or when she and her family are trying to escape, or her days in the Red Center. And this happens so quickly that occasionally you have to stop and realize, oh, she's moving into the past. But... Time in the commander's household, the present time, seems to move very slowly. And as far as keeping track of how much present time has gone by from the beginning of our story, it can be a little bit hard to tell. For example, we've met all of our major characters, Ofrid, Ofglund, Serena Joy. The commander, we see him very briefly, although we haven't quite met him yet. We also meet Nick and the Marthas, Rita and Cora. But it seems as though no more than one or two days have passed up until this point. And that slow passage of time is reflected in the first part of chapter 13. Ofrid says that there's time to spare, and that she wasn't prepared for such long, quote, parentheses of nothingness. She wishes she could embroider or knit or weave. She wants something to do with her hands. And then that transitions into wanting a cigarette and remembering images in an art museum of women in harems. She describes these paintings as studies of sedentary flesh, painted by men who'd never been there, saying that the pictures were supposed to be erotic, and she thought that they were when she first saw them, but now she sees what they were really about, which is, quote, suspended animation, and about waiting, about objects not in use. Alfred said these were paintings about boredom, and she adds that maybe boredom is erotic when women do it for men. To me, this observation speaks not only to her current circumstance, but also that idea of women sitting around waiting for the man to come back and sort of wake them up, and that idea being erotic. That the women only exist when the male gaze is on them, and until then they're suspended in objects that have no use or purpose except for sex. These paintings she speaks of not only portray women who are only awakened from this state for these purposes. But it also describes women who have no power or agency. They are there only to be looked at and used. Any other time, they are closed off, ostensibly for their protection, but truly for the men in such societies, to view them only in the rarefied, simplistic environment created that hold these women captives. By simplistic, I mean that these women don't have to deal with the day-to-day concerns of living, and therefore they don't make decisions, they don't argue, they don't do anything that would make the men in these circumstances think of them as anything other than sexual objects. And so it's a simplistic or simplified environment that is a fantasy for the men. Offred says that she feels like these women and she waits and she's been washed, brushed, fed like a prize pig She mentions that in the 80s, someone discovered that if you gave pigs being fattened in pens a colored ball to push around, they did better because they had something to think about. She comments that she wishes she had a pig ball. She also mentions caged rats that would give themselves electric shocks just to have something to do, and birds that were trained to peck a button in the hopes of getting grain. But I want to come back to that point soon. Rather, I want to say that for me, this idea of having nothing whatsoever to do feels terrifying. Not only in her circumstances where she's trapped and doesn't know how to get out, but even right now as I'm sitting here in a society that allows me to do things like read and weave and knit if I'm so inclined. If you sat me in a room and told me that I had nothing to do or that I couldn't do anything at all, I'd probably pull my hair out strand by strand. It feels so relevant to me that Ofrid would wish for something, anything to do. And it's also interesting because as you you may recall, Serena Joy knits and gardens because she's supposed to be an idealized housewife, but she also needs something to do. And so she has these elaborate sweaters that she knits for the soldiers and this garden that is carefully tended, but Ofrid gets nothing. The women in this society are fitted into very narrow roles that leave no room for deviation. So Ofrid is here for procreation. Serena Joy is here to be the woman of the house and the gracious angel in the house. But back to the story. Oford recalls practicing their birthing exercises at the Red Center and then the naps they took in the afternoon, commenting that this was also perhaps practice and the ants were helping them get used to having blank time, adding that, quote, the strange thing was we needed the rest. We were tired there a lot of the time. She says they might have been drugged to keep calm or it might have been the shock of their situation keeping them, them lethargic. Regardless of that, They were tired, and they did take naps. She then leads into a recounting of Moira's appearance in the Red Center during one of these nap times. Moira still wore her regular clothes, and her hair was short because Moira defies fashion, which is how Ofrid recognized her, that detail in particular. But both women pretend not to know each other because already they know what is and isn't safe in this new world. Ofred says they couldn't speak for several days and could only give small glances because friendships were suspicious. That makes us wonder, why are friendships suspicious? My thoughts are, is because they give you hope and solidarity. Together, the women can accomplish more or keep each other's spirits up. And so Gilead is preventing this from happening by making friendships something dangerous and suspicious that can cause you to be punished. We see this in other parts of the book, how they go about doing this, but we also see it in real life, too, as Kelly G's email pointed out. Ofrid says it makes her feel safer, though, that Moira is here, and then we can see that solidarity already at work. They want to meet up in the bathroom, and during the testifying, which appears to be a group confessional aspect of the Red Center training, Ofrid is able to get permission to go to the bathroom. Although she has to be careful because one woman was denied permission last week, and wet the floor. She was punished, but no one knew what they did to her. And Ofrid says, not knowing makes it worse. This detail, not knowing makes it worse, is where I'd like to circle back around to that story about the birds and the grains. You might be familiar with a study outside of the book. I think it's a popular one for psychology textbooks to use. And the study goes like this. Uh, One group of birds were trained to peck at a button, and each time they did, one grain would be delivered. Another group of birds got the grain every two pecks, but the third group had randomized deliveries of grain. So then the researchers stopped giving any grain for pecks, and the first group was the first group to stop pecking, followed by the second, because both of these groups had been conditioned for some sense of order. So it was easy for them to not expect it anymore when the, the grain stopped coming in response to their pecks. But that third group, the one who only randomly got grain, kept pecking, hoping that this time would be it, and they slowly died off, rather than stop pecking. My point is, not knowing makes it worse, and not knowing when you'll get grain, or what will happen to you in a society like Gilead, is a way of controlling these women. Not knowing the punishment makes it worse, but also not knowing what will or could happen to you in Gilead. Your mind begins to play tricks on you, telling that this time you'll get the grain, or this time you'll get caught, and that not knowing makes it a punishment, because it's your mind keeping you trapped in that cycle. It's interesting that in amongst her describing the way she goes about getting permission to go to the bathroom, and making sure that she times it correctly so she can go meet up with Moira, is also this quick little sentence that really kind of shows us the psychological damage that's already going on in Gilead and in the Red Center. Now I'm going to turn back to look at what goes on in this testifying passage, but before we examine it, I want to give you a quick warning to anyone who would like to avoid any discussion of sexual assault and victim-blaming. We are going to discuss Janine's past, and then we'll continue on with Ofrid's story, but I think it's important to see how the Red Center in Gilead breaks down the handmaids so that they exist docilely in this reality. So just a warning, if you want to stop listening for the next minute or so, here's where to skip. Okay. In the testifying group circle, Janine is telling about how she was gang-raped at 14 and had an abortion. The first time she told this story the week before, Ofrid said that Janine seemed almost proud of it, and that it might even not be true, because it's safer to make things up than say you have nothing to reveal. But Ofrid says that since it's Janine, it's probably more or less true. From the first time we've met Janine, there's been this negative quality to Ofrid's interpretation of her that we really see in full bloom here janine is perceived as being smug about her pregnancy when we first see her and so we the readers are already primed to turn against her but here ofrid and through her atwood does something more she says that knowing janine it's probably more or less true so my question is what do you think that means knowing janine it seems like victim blaming or slut shaming to me but I'd be willing to question that if you see it differently. However, in a second, we see full-blown victim-blaming, not just from Ofrid and her thoughts, but specifically from Aunt Helena, when she asks the women, whose fault was it? And the women chant in unison, her fault, her fault, her fault. Aunt Helena asks, who led them on? And the women chant, she did, she did, she did. And then when Aunt Helena asks, why did god allow such a terrible thing to happen they chant teach her a lesson teach her a lesson teach her a lesson the week before this caused janine to burst into tears and aunt helena made her kneel in front of the classroom hands behind her back where we could all see her her red face and dripping nose her hair dull blonde her eyelashes so light they seemed not there The lost eyelashes of someone who's been in a fire. Burned eyes. She looked disgusting. Weak, squirmy, blotchy, pink, like a newborn mouse. None of us wanted to look like that, ever. For a moment, even though we knew it was being done to her, we despised her. Cry baby, cry baby, cry baby. We meant it, which is the bad part. I used to think well of myself. I didn't then. That was last week in front of the classroom. And this part right here really reveals part of why the Red Center is doing this kind of activity. It's not just about slut-shaming, although there is definitely that, and it's not just about victim-blaming. Really, in particular, it has to do with this idea of turning a character into a scapegoat. So we have this deadly internalized misogyny that blames a 14-year-old for her own rape, and also the scapegoating of a vulnerable member of the group. Ofred says that none of the women wanted to be like Janine, so they would do whatever it took to not be seen like that. And even though intellectually they knew what was going on, they despised Janine for being so vulnerable and open to being abused by the ants. This hatred makes it easier for the ants to, to control the group because it gives, them, it gives some members even the slightest illusion or sliver of power over another, making them feel more in control. And that's how they lead you around by your privilege. This will make Janine more controllable as well, because she now believes or appears to believe what they said about her it was my fault she says it was my own fault I let them on I deserved the pain and she will do whatever it takes to avoid being in that vulnerable position again and in response she gets told very good Janine by Aunt Lydia you are an example Ofrid goes to the bathroom at that moment, and she meets up with Moira in the bathroom, and they're finally able to discuss here. And I want to jump from that example of vulnerability with Janine to another instance of seeming vulnerability that really made me perceive my world in a different light. When Ofrid goes to the wash- washroom, she says that it used to be used for boys, and that the urinals are still there. She says they look oddly like babies' coffins which seems like an appropriate simile for Gilead and the Red Center. But what I want to focus on, in particular, is when Ophred says she marvels at, quote, the nakedness of men's lives, the showers right out in the open, the body exposed for inspection and comparison, the public display of privates. What is it for? What purposes of reassurance does it serve? The flashing of a badge? Look, everyone, all is in order. I belong here. Why don't women have to prove to one another that they are women? First, this passage about bathrooms and proving to each other what gender we are struck a particularly relevant chord with me as our country argues over who can and can't use restrooms. I currently live in Texas, and our state is trying to pass the same bathroom bill laws that North Carolina passed about regulating transgender people in their bathrooms. Obviously, Atwood, writing this in the mid-80s, wasn't discussing that specifically, but it does speak to the fears people have about genders and policing gender norms and therefore also policing who is a woman and who is a man throughout time. But what I really noticed about this passage is how it speaks to men's nakedness, but there is no vulnerability here. Instead, showing off their bodies is a power stance. It's a mark of belonging to the tribe that is in control. And it struck me there is no shame in nakedness for men. For women, we are constantly told to cover up, that our bodies are something to be ashamed of, and therefore our nakedness is something we try to avoid because it leaves us open to ridicule, horror, and shame. But it's not the same for men in the abstract because no one tells them that their bodies open them up to attack or lead others to assault them. No one shames a man for having male body parts. They might shame individual men for not being manly enough, or things along these lines, but they don't ever tell a man, hey, you got assaulted because you showed off part of your body. And I don't know why this thought just occurred to me during the preparation for this episode, but it was one of those things that struck me dumb. Like, oh, it clicks. Women are shamed for their bodies because they lack the marker that show inclusion into that circle of power and therefore we are okay with shaming their bodies and I wish that I had realized that sooner like when I was a younger woman being told to cover up because I think if I had understood that that was part of the reason why I was being told to cover up I would have felt more empowered to say no My body is not something to be ashamed of. And instead, that was something that I had to struggle through, and I'm sure, as many women do, still work on today. Back to the rest of the story, however. Moira and Ofrid talk, and then Ofrid jumps back to the present-day Gilead, where she sinks down into her body, as into a swamp, Finland, where only she knows the footing. She says, it's treacherous ground, my own territory. Part of me wonders, who is it treacherous to, herself or others who seek to invade? Because then she begins to ruminate on fertility using very natural images like clouds and moons. She says that she becomes the earth and she sets her ear against herself, the earth, to listen for rumors of the future. All the twinges and murmurs of her body are signs that she needs to know about. She says that she watches for blood fearfully every month, for when it comes, it means failure. If you've ever paid close attention to your body seeking signs of pregnancy, I'm sure you can relate to this idea. I know that I can. But Ofrid isn't just reading the signs for herself. This failure means that she has, quote, failed once again to fulfill the expectations of others which have become her own. She has internalized the sense of who she is that Gilead has placed on her. And her failure to live up to her role means a failure in more ways than just procreation. Ophrod says that she used to think of her body, quote, as an instrument of pleasure, or an instrument for the accomplishment of her will. But now it arranges differently. It's a cloud, something insubstantial and amorphous around an object, the shape of a pear, which I interpret to mean her womb. Because if I'm remembering my anatomy correctly, the uterus is a bit of a pear-shaped object. And she says this object is, quote, hard and more real than she is. And inside it is a space, huge as a sky. Every month there is a moon, gigantic, round, heavy, an omen. And then it goes away. And she sees, quote, despair coming towards her, leaving her feeling empty again. This poetic description of her body's cycles, and the despair she feels over not being able to do what her body is naturally supposed to do, resonates with me as a woman in my thirties, thinking about having children, and so perhaps to me it feels even more heavy with emotion, but at the same time, I'm reminded of why Ofrid wants to have a child, and that weight of her world of Gilead gives it such a dark, threatening reminder of why she would despair at seeing blood every month. This anxiety over the, her inability to conceive seems to be what drives her to a memory of the past, although it's disjointed and it's not even she's not even sure herself if it's a reality, if it's a real memory. She doesn't recognize the clothes in the closet of the first apartment she has shared with Luke. He's behind her but he doesn't answer when she calls his name, prompting her to think that he may not be alive in present day. Then the past shifts to what seems to be an actual memory of Ofrid and her daughter running through the woods as they try to escape. The little girl slows her down, and Ofrid is questioning what to do next when they hear gunshots. They get down, and she covers her daughter. And this is interesting. She says, quote, I feel calm and floating, as if I'm no longer in my body. Which seems to relate back to that sense of an amorphous body that she describes earlier in this chapter. She tries to silence her daughter, but then she recalls that Quote, they come apart, and her arms are held. Opred's arms are held, and the edges go dark, and nothing is left but a very little but a little window and Through the small telescoping window, she can see her daughter quote, small but very clear, going away from her, and holding out her arms, but being carried away. Ofred wakes up, so we know that this is a dream, and most likely the memory of Luke was too. Perhaps the imagery of her body as a cloud around a pear-shaped thing was a dream as well. Ofer tells us, though, that out of all the dreams, this is the worst. We can assume that she means the one where she loses her daughter, because she says that her face is wet, and so we can assume that her losing her daughter has made her cry, and this is the worst dream possible. But I also wonder, this syntax is so vague here. She doesn't specify exactly what this is. I wonder if it's also supposed to touch on her current reality as a dream, and that that is the worst? Probably not. I'm probably reading too much into it. But given the fact that we don't realize any of these memories or dreams until she tells us she wakes up, who's to say definitively what she means by a dream? All right, now we come to Part 6, Household, Chapter 14. I want to make the point that we are 14 chapters in, 200 pages in my book and we finally get to well no not even yet we don't even quite get to the ceremony that is at the heart of the handmaid's experience. We get to the first part of it but we still don't quite know what is meant when Alfred calls herself a handmaid and a two-legged womb. So I wonder why do you think it's taken us this long to truly realize and understand what being a handmaid means Do you think Atwood is just building tension, laying out questions for the reader to ponder until we get there? Having us know that the handmaids are subjected to all sorts of psychological attacks and that their lives in the commander's household are so restrictive? And then finally, at last, seeing what else their lives consist of? Does that help us understand what it means to be a handmaid in more than just describing the actual process? Up until this point we don't have specifics of why Ofrid has to bathe or why she's here at all hated by Serena Joy. But now Atwood is slowly unwinding the ceremony and in chapter 15 we'll see it fully realized and we'll be able to really understand and appreciate a reader's surprise and perhaps their horror at this idea. I was researching the idea of satire and the formal satire and this book does fall into that category. I think part of why it does that is that this matter-of-fact way that Offord is telling these events reinforces the horrific society and the matter-of-fact way the society is set up. She's just retelling these events without much emotion, as if it's common to her, even though we do know how repellent she finds it. To some extent, she's become resigned to it, much like Jonathan Swift's narrator in A Modest Proposal resigns himself to selling Irish babies for dinner. This is her world. She doesn't like it, but she is telling us about it in a way that recognizes the horror and yet doesn't let herself dwell on it. Oferd begins this careful recounting of the ceremony by focusing on the bell's chimes and the clock ticks and her feet in their neat red shoes that count the way down. She goes into the sitting room and takes her place, kneeling Ophred says that she might, Serena Joy might, steady herself on Ophred's shoulder like she's a piece of furniture and that Serena Joy has done it before. She ruminates on the names of rooms like this and says that sitting is done in it for some, but for others, there's standing room only. Then she adds, the posture of the body is important. Here and now, minor discomforts are instructive. This sentence made me think of two different things. First of all, the way that Ofrid is used as a piece of furniture seems to reflect her role in this society as well, and Serena Joy is just reinforcing it. Secondly, this idea that the posture of the body is important here and now, minor discomforts are instructive, makes me think of the formality of how you arrange your body, which says a great deal about your society and the small, expected signs of respect. For instance, if you've ever watched a film or television show with a king or queen, like Elizabeth or Henry VIII, you will see a very codified way of arranging the body to indicate respect. The interactions with one's superior were much more formal, and that posture was important. In addition, it makes me think of the Christian ideas of virtue through suffering. Throughout Christendom, religious figures have advocated for penance that makes the sinner uncomfortable as a way to remind them and teach them the virtuous way. Sacrifice is linked to Christ, and so it's quite believable that in a society where women are expected to behave as inferior to men, that the posture of the body is important, but also, in a society dominated by religion and where women are inherently considered sinful. Minor discomforts are instructive to remind them of their place and of their work. Offord focuses on the sitting room again, and here we have another reminder of power. This time it's not solely religious power. She says that the sitting room is one of the shapes money takes when it freezes. Money has trickled through this room for years and years as if through an underground cavern and she goes on to present images of money and luxury in this room like velvet drapes eighteenth-century matching glossy chairs the hush of a tufted chinese rug the suave leather of the commander's chair and the glinting brass box beside it She says that some of the objects are authentic and describes a painting of two women who look as though they could walk out of the old painting into the present Gilead and fit in. Offred says that she thinks Serena Joy acquired them after she realized she'd have to, quote, redirect her energies into something convincingly domestic and perhaps she wanted to pass them off as ancestors. I'd like to point out that despite Gilead's facade of religiosity, money is still a driving force of power in the society just like it is in every society. If you have the money, you have the control. If you don't, then you end up like Ofrid or the Marthas or Nick. Even if you do have money, it helps to bolster your ancestry to display whatever is viewed as important to the society like the paintings of the Puritan-esque women. But we also see that beneath Serena Joy's displays of wealth is a crassness and what some might associate with the nouveau riche. Uh, she has a, quote, hard lust for quality, alongside soft, sentimental cravings. And this is seen sort of in a negative light by Ofrid, who is perhaps judging Serena Joy's t- taste in addition to everything else she judges in Gilead. Alfred says that she'd like to steal something from the room because it would make her feel that she has power, but she knows it would be illusory because she actually has no power in this situation, and it would be incredibly risky. Alfred also comments on Serena Joy's perfume, which again displays wealth because it's a black market item, but also associates her with patriarchal ideas of feminine innocence because her f- perfume is Lily of the Valley. And there's religious Qualities to the title of that. There's the Bible verse that says, Look at the lilies of the valleys, they neither spin nor do they weave, and I'm paraphrasing now, and yet God clothes them in beauty. Basically, saying that you don't actually have to do anything for God to make you beautiful, you just have to have faith in Him. But Ofrid says that the perfume is also the scent of prepubescent girls of the innocence of female flesh not yet given over to hairiness and blood. And yet, the person wearing it is an older woman who can't walk very well and is no longer able to procreate. Later in this scene, Oford also says that even at her age, Serena Joy still feels the urge to wreath herself in flowers, whether it's with perfume or with embroidered flowers on her blue dress and she sort of mocks her with this idea because flowers are supposed to represent fertility and new life and she also says that they are uh, the genital organs of plants and yet Serena Joy is wreathing herself with these things as a way to symbolize her fertility and therefore her worth and yet she's not actually able to partake of them. The other household members join in the sitting room, and we see Rita give Ofrid a scornful look, because this ceremony is Ofrid's fault. Not hers, Ofrid corrects, but her body's. She's, she's separating her selfhood from her body here, saying that I'm not the one who's choosing this, my body is choosing it. I'm basically unable to even control these aspects. And she says, even the commander is subject to its whims, but she herself lacks any sort of control, even in this matter. When Nick comes in, we have an interesting detail. Nick stands so close that she can feel the tip of his boot touching her foot. And when she moves her foot away, he moves his again, so they are touching again. I wonder what motivates this, and clearly Ofra does too. This is one of the troubling details about Nick throughout the story. Is he sympathetic and offering her a small gesture of uh, affection? Or is he a spy? Is he showing her solidarity here or is he tempting her in order to um, get her to fall so that they have once again a chance to say, look at this fallen woman, look at this sinful woman. We don't really know. And I would argue that you don't know for most of the story one way or the other, even if you personally might be hoping for one interpretation of Nick. When Serena Joy comes in, she turns on the television, and just like this is Alfred's chance to know what's going on in the world, it's also our chance as readers to see more world-building and understand more about Gilead. First we have a male choir singing a hymn, then the Montreal satellite station which is blocked, and then we have an earnest preacher, and Offred says that these days they look a lot like businessmen, to which I have to say I know exactly what she means. A lot of preachers on television look more like businessmen than men of God. And then we have some blank channels, and finally the news. Of course, it's highly subjective news, and Ofrid says, who knows if any of it is true. It could be old clips. It could be faked. Wow, doesn't that feel relevant? But she watches it anyway, because, as we learned in chapter 13, not knowing makes it worse. Even fake news relieves the anxiety we feel to know something about our world. She hopes to be able to read between the lines and says that any news now is better than none. We learn details about where the world, about where the war is going. We learn details about where the war is going on like in the Appalachian Highlands against Baptist guerrillas and Quakers who were arrested smuggling precious natural resources over the border into handmade. Uh over the border into Canada. And I want to mention this is code for handmaids. Handmaids are being smuggled across the border into Canada. We also learn that Gilead is resettling the children of Ham as the news anchor calls them. 3,000 have been moved to National Homeland One, which is part of what used to be North Dakota. 2,000 more are in transit. Ofred wonders about trains, or buses being used for this transportation, this seems to link the resettlement to the Nazi resettlement of Jews into concentration camps. The title, Children of Ham, needs some context. Ham was supposedly the son of Noah, or one of the sons of Noah, who, according to the Old Testament, saw his father drunk and naked. There's some debate about what this actually means, what does it mean to see him drunk and naked, but apparently whatever it meant was enough to get Ham cursed. And since the 17th century, biblical scholars have thought that the name Ham relates to the Hebrew word for burnt or black, or that the word is an Egyptian one for servant. So ten guesses for who the children of Ham are in Gilead and why they're being resettled. All joking aside, this type of thing hardly seems surprising for this surface religious community, does it? I do want to point out that a 2004 book argues against these interpretations of the word ham in Hebrew, but it doesn't stop these earlier 17th century and and more recent connections or Gilead's view of blackness. Apparently they are being sent to National Homeland One to farm, or at least that's the theory, says Ofrid, telling us that she has her doubts, and this is just one more way that I see a connection between the children of Ham and Gilead and the Jewish population during the Holocaust. The news is cut off here and the gathered household waits. This causes Ofrid to go back to the day that she and Luke tried to escape with their daughter. It was a Saturday morning in September and they still have a car. She had another name back then but now it's forbidden. Ofrid tries to tell herself in the present That a name isn't actually important, but she also knows that it does matter. She keeps the knowledge of this name like something hidden, some treasure she'll come back to dig up. And it has an aura around it, like an amulet, some charm that survived from an unimaginably distant past. At night, the name floats behind her eyes, out of reach, but shining in the dark. Ofred says it's a Saturday morning in September, and she's wearing her shining name. She says the little girl, who is now dead, sits in the back seat holding her best-beloved toys. But Ofred can't think about them too much, or she'll cry in the sitting room. She will do that later, when she's by herself. First, I want to mention we don't know that the daughter is dead. Maybe Ofred believes that she is, or maybe she's just trying to convince herself that she is because the alternative is too much to bear. They didn't tell the little girl where they're going and Luke drove. She passes the houses thinking she'd never see them again. They have almost nothing with them except fake passports and visas. They have a plan and she tries to focus on it. They're going to go on a picnic across the border. Ofrid says they tried to escape and they tried to get out of the way of the future that they saw coming. She tries not to think about what would happen if they are caught because if she thinks this way, it will happen as Moira says. Luke is driving too fast from all the adrenaline and he's singing. Ofrid says that even his singing worries her because they've been warned not to look too happy. And this is where the chapter ends. We haven't gotten to the commander's arrival yet or even what will happen once he does. We still don't know exactly what the ceremony is, but we do know that Ofrid tried to escape and we know what her life is like because she didn't. We don't know all of it, but we're on a precipice, waiting, just as she is. The only difference is that she knows what's about to come, and we, the reader, still don't. The last line, we've been warned not to look too happy, reminds me of old ideas and superstitions that people who look too happy will be punished by the jealous gods, or that being too happy tempts fate. And as we can see in this chapter, Ofrid appears to have been correct to be worried. They are caught, and her worst fears are realized. We don't fully understand what that looks like yet, but we have the ominous foreshadowing of what exactly the ceremony involves. We are going to stop right there and cover the next two chapters, 15 and 16, next time. Thank you for joining me as I examined chapters 13 and 14. If you'd like to share your thoughts, you can email me, readwriteswell at gmail.com, or find me on Twitter, at read underscore swell please rate this podcast on iTunes if you haven't already done so or leave a review because it helps more people find the podcast and keeps it going you can also help us out by becoming a subscriber on iTunes and getting the next episode as it's ready or a patron on our Patreon page which will be launching on August 1st there you can donate to support new episodes and continue the show as well as find out about the reward levels for your contributions thanks and have a great day You've been listening to Read Swell, a Wordswell workshops production owned by Meredith Byrne. Music by Ian McCoy. Excerpts of Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale are used for purposes of commentary or criticism. Read Swell is a Creative Commons podcast. For questions or use of podcast episode, contact readwriteswell at gmail.com.